Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Such an inclement season is scarcely remembered by the oldest inhabitants of London or its environs. This unexpected visitation from heaven, added to the severe distress to which the country is otherwise reduced, has infused into the minds of the people generally the greatest apprehension and alarm. Should the present wet weather continue, the corn will inevitably be laid, and the effects of such a calamity, and at such a time, cannot be otherwise than ruinous to the farmers, and even to the people at large. The weather, it would seem, is not unseasonable in this country only, for we find that in Sweden and many other parts it has been equally unfavorable. We may add that the weather continues bad all over the continent. The situation of America is also extraordinary in this respect. London Times, July 20th, 1816. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 46, The Year Without Summer, Part 2 On July 6, 1816, two days after the 40th anniversary of American independence, a woman named Ruth Henshaw Bascom of Worcester, Massachusetts, wrote in her diary as she often did. She noted that the weather on this day was, quote, fair and cold. Two days earlier in Connecticut, it had been cold enough that 4th of July revelers at outdoor parties celebrating the 40th anniversary of American independence had to wear thick overcoats. On this day, the 6th of July, Ruth Bascom accompanied some neighbors and members of her family to the local graveyard. A family called Maynard had recently had a stone tomb built, and on this day they disinterred the bodies of the family who'd been buried there and moved them into the tomb. Apparently the caskets were opened and all assembled could see the remains as they were moved. Ruth Bascom wrote this, quote, The face of Dr. Hayes, who had been buried three months, was entirely covered with a thick white powder, as white as new-fallen snow. Captain Maynard, dead one and a half years, and the children three and four years, were black and putrid. Here can we idolize these living features of our dead friends, 
when we know that in a short time we must all come to this, all molder and reborn, oh, may we dedicate our hearts and labors more to the improvement of our immortal souls. End quote. Morbid subjects were on the minds of others that same summer. Across the Atlantic at the center of Europe, which had experienced endless cold rains and floods for most of the spring and early summer, a group of English visitors to the shores of Lake Geneva found the wet, cold weather ruining their plans. The visitors were some of the greatest literati of their day, Lord Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and his soon-to-be wife, Mary Godwin. Byron's sometime girlfriend, Claire Claremont, who was pregnant with his child, and the moody Dr. John Polidori. You know this story. I told it in episode 21 of this podcast about the creation of Frankenstein. As Mary put it, quote, The season was cold and rainy, and in the evenings we crowded around a blazing wood fire and occasionally amused ourselves with some German stories of ghosts, which happened to fall into our hands, end quote. On the stormy night of June 18, 1816, 11 days after the snowstorm in North America and a little less than three weeks before Ruth Henshaw Bascom wrote her ghoulish entry in her diary in Massachusetts, the English literati were sitting around in the chilly parlor of the Villa Diodati on the shores of Lake Geneva, and Byron read aloud from a poem of Samuel Taylor Coleridge called Christabel. The imagery from the poem, quote, a sight to dream of, not to tell, was too much for Percy Shelley. He ran screaming out of the room in a kind of hysteria. Dr. Polidori tended him, giving him a shot of ether, and Mary asked her boyfriend what he'd seen. He told her that he'd seen the image of a woman who had eyes where her nipples should have been, and the image utterly horrified him. This was the kind of thing that was happening to people during the year without summer. It was cold when it should have been warm. It was stormy when it should have been fair. People were gloomy and focused on death in a season that should have been at least less depressing and harrowing than the other seasons in the year, which were, for all but the very rich in the second decade, a miserable slog for food, warmth, and livelihood. Judging from their letters and memoirs and diaries of which I've read many, people in the second decade seem to exist on a sort of emotional knife edge. Not that people don't today. Mental and emotional health was every bit as challenging 200 years ago to many people as it is today. But in reading over accounts of the year without summer, I'm struck by just how fragile they seem to be, and how a sight of a corpse or a ghoulish image from the depths of one's mind could seem all the more disturbing when the weather and climate itself seemed extraordinarily out of alignment. Something was simply wrong with the world that summer, and people felt it everywhere. Here, too, is another link between this story of 1816 and our modern episode of man-made climate change. So many of us are on edge today over global warming because something just feels wrong, unnatural, out of whack. Sometimes the very air around us feels not at all like it should, and it affects us much more deeply, perhaps, than we usually admit. At first blush, it might seem that the subject of modern human-caused global warming isn't relevant to what was happening to the world in 1816, which was global cooling that occurred as a result of natural rather than human causes. After all, the period of climate change we're talking about in this episode happened over 200 years ago and from a completely different cause. What does it have to do, then, with modern global warming? 
In fact, though, once we drill into the subject, it's abundantly clear that modern anthropogenic climate change is highly relevant to the year without summer, and in fact is key to understanding it. And here's why. Except for the shrinking minority of people who deny the existence or causation of modern global warming, I would think that almost everybody would agree that our understanding of modern human-caused climate change can be enhanced by understanding how people dealt with climate changes in the past, the year without summer being one of them. If you accept that, as I think the vast majority of people would, why doesn't it work in reverse? Can't our understanding of past climate change be informed by our lived experience of the climate change we're experiencing now, even if it isn't an exact graft with what happened 200 years ago? So this, I think, is how to get yourself into the headspace of those people who lived through that strange summer 203 years ago. And you could do worse than to think about how modern climate change might make you feel, particularly in the sense of its oddness, its unnaturalness, and its tendency to cause anxious or gloomy thoughts, perhaps even, as we'll see in tonight's episode, anxiety about the end of the world. Join me once again as we continue the chilly, gloomy, and bizarre story of The Year Without Summer, Part 2. Good evening. As I did with the last episode, I'm going to save announcements, news, shoutouts, and such to the end of this episode, with two very brief exceptions. I received a new five-star review on iTunes. I'm going to start reading these on the show from now on. So thank you very much from user Check61, who writes, Great podcast. Enjoyed it immensely. I have an undergrad in history and would love to have Sean as an instructor. Thanks very much for this review. I really appreciate that support. And also thanks to my newest Patreon supporter, Nils. Thank you very much and welcome aboard. We left off with the story of the year without summer just after the northeastern snowstorm of June 1816 and the gloomy lunar eclipse of June 9th, which appeared dark and hazy through the shroud of volcanic dust that had circled the earth as a result primarily of the Tambora eruption of 1815. The spring months of 1816 had exhibited some truly unusual weather, particularly at sea. In many places it seemed like the winter was lingering long after it should have gone away, a newspaper in York, Ontario, now Toronto, reported this, quote, A letter from Dublin to a gentleman in New York, dated the 8th of May, says the spring is the latest ever known, or at least now remembered here. Very few of the trees are in bloom, and there is little vegetation of any kind. Accounts from England and France agree in representing a similar backwardness of the season, end quote. Snow from winter was still visible in many places. A London paper ran a report in midsummer from a place called Fettercairn in Scotland, which is near Aberdeen. Quote, On a hill, the property of Sir Alexander Ramsay in the parish of Fettercairn, at the distance of little more than 12 miles from the German Ocean, there was a remnant of a wreath of snow which measured, on the 12th instant, 5 feet deep and 80 yards in circumference. This circumstance is the more remarkable as there is no record of any snow having remained on the hills in that parish after the beginning of June, and very seldom even to that period. Quote. But it wasn't uniformly cold everywhere. 
I noted in the last episode that two weeks after the snowstorm, temperatures in the 90s Fahrenheit were recorded in parts of New England, and Georgia and other parts of the South also suffered from heat in late June 1816. Diaries are excellent sources for creating a continuous record of the weather in a particular place. Years ago, I was granted the privilege of reading the original diary of a man named William Payne, a doctor who lived in Worcester, Massachusetts. The diary is held in the archives of the American Antiquarian Society, where I did part of my thesis and dissertation research. Payne would, as many people did in this period, traditionally begin each diary entry with a very short statement of what the weather was doing that day. For example, on Friday, June 7th, the day it was snowing in various parts of the Northeast, he wrote, quote, Wind fresh at northwest and the weather severely cold. The frost destroyed my beans in the lower square of the garden. The global warden and sun here. Abbott employed about the barn. The most frequent comment in Dr. Payne's diary on the weather in summer 1816 was the repetition of four particular words over and over again. Cold for the season. These exact words appear in entries, sometimes they're the only entry, for the following dates. June 9th, 10th, 11th, 15th, 16th, and 17th. July 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 15th, 18th, 19th, and 30th. For example, on July 9th, he wrote, July 9th, Tuesday, the temperature this morning stood at 50 degrees, the weather clear and unusually cold for the season, wind west. Yet it was also warm at times. On Monday, June 24th, for example, the temperature Dr. Payne recorded was 87 degrees Fahrenheit. This is entirely consistent with other weather records I found from the same period. It warmed up again in late July and early August. On Sunday, August 11th, the temperature was, according to Dr. Payne, 69 at sunrise, 74 was the high for the day, and the next day it was fair and 77 degrees. Then it cooled down again, on August 21st, the weather was fair, but it was only 55 degrees. An anonymous diary held in the archives of the Massachusetts Historical Society tells much the same story. We don't know the author of this diary, though references elsewhere make it clear that he or she was a parishioner of the famous Hollis Street Church in Boston, whose fiery pastor, Reverend Horace Holly, later president of Transylvania University in Kentucky, is mentioned several times in its pages. In 1816, Anonymous writes, quote, June, 4th and 5th warmer with showers, 6th extreme cold with high winds freezes the ground at night. 9th continues with a sharp frost at night which cuts beans and other tender plants to the ground. 10th some frost, 21st rather warmer, vegetation never known to be backward. Indian corn scarcely fit to weed, 28th cool. July 4th, very cool for the season, Indian corn and English grass, very unpromising. 18th, dry and cool, no rain since the month came in, of consequence. 20th through 25th, fine rain. 26th, English grass, light and backward, people just beginning to hay. August 3rd, fine growing weather, winter rise, scarcely fit to reap. 15th, fine, 18th and 19th, very sultry with showers. 21st, very cool. 28th, high winds and cool some frost said to be in lowlands, end quote. This, too, is corroborated in the diary of Aaron White. Loyal second-decade listeners will remember Aaron as one of the young students at Harvard College whose diary paints a vivid picture of life in college in the 18-teens. That was in episode 14, Down and Out at Harvard, 
which is probably my favorite episode ever of this podcast. At the risk of repeating myself, I quoted Aaron at length in that episode, thanks to the Massachusetts Historical Society, where his diaries reside today. I'll read you his diary entries from the summer of 1816. He's in Cambridge and Boston. June 6, 1816. Cold weather. The thermometer stood yesterday at 82, today at 50. June 24, fair. Thermometer 98 in the shade, 110 in the sun. July 8th, fair. The season very backward. July 13th, fair. The season remarkably backward, cold and dry. July 17th, fair. I went to Roxbury this afternoon, had a plant of cherries, a very remarkable season, produce extremely scarce. July 19th, fair, a most remarkable season, and strange times, money scarce, Boston never before known to be so full of goods of all kinds. September 28th, fair and very cold, a very severe frost last night, corn much injured. I started this morning from Boylston with my brother Avery, and after an uncomfortable day's ride arrived at Cambridge, took possession of my new room, the same my grandfather occupied 40 years ago, end quote. If you haven't heard Down and Out at Harvard, please do go back and take a listen. It's really a fun episode. So I think I've painted a very vivid picture in New England, at least of the strange back-and-forth nature of the weather that summer. Cold, then hot, then cold again, and again, and again. One thing you'll notice about all these diaries is how often they mention crops and agriculture. People in 1816, wherever they lived, almost never ate food that came from more than a few miles around their home. The backwardness of crops, you see that term over and over again, foretold a lean and hungry fall and winter season to come. Just traveling through the countryside, as all of these diarists did, and seeing how stunted the fields and their crops looked, was undoubtedly a depressing experience. Aaron White was, in fact, literally depressed. On June 13th, he wrote in his diary, somewhat touched by the hypochondria. That word, hypochondria, meant in the second decade what we would today refer to as depression. Not a clinical diagnosis, mind you, but definitely a mood and mindset. Depression is an awful affliction, and there are too many fleeting references to it in sources from the year without summer to dismiss it as a coincidence. The weather, the strangeness of the weather, affected people. While this was going on in America, another drama was playing out in Europe. This is the bizarre story of what we'll call the Bologna Prophecy. And for this we must return at first to the English literati, both those back home in England and those vacationing in Switzerland. In the summer of 1816, English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, you remember it was his poem that triggered Percy Shelley's weird vision of the woman with eyes in her breasts, Anyway, Coleridge was then living in Highgate, England, and trying to conquer an opium addiction. He'd been in ill health. In mid-July, he wrote to a friend, I have had no relapse for three weeks, though I have otherwise been unwell twice, and this end-of-the-world weather is sadly against me. End-of-the-world weather. Remember that phrase. It's important. Coleridge was friends with Lord Byron, who, as you know, was spending the summer at Villa Diodati. We'll get back to him in a moment. The end of the world was on people's minds in Europe. As the London Times reported in late June, running an item from an unnamed French paper dated June 1st, quote, According to the calculations of an astronomer of Bologna, who has lately published in Fermo, Italy, some observations on the subject, 
on the 18th of July, a great solar catastrophe is to put an end to the world by conflagration. The signs of this are the spots to be remarked at present on the sun's disk. The government, thinking it improper to suffer the circulation of such predictions, has put the astronomer under arrest. End quote. Now you remember all the hullabaloo made about sunspots in the last episode. Information on the origin of the Bologna prophecy is surprisingly scant. It's apparently not known precisely who made the prediction, or if he really was an astronomer, and when or under what circumstances the prophecy was made. As it was on the minds of Europeans by June 1st, before the sustained assault of unseasonably wintry weather through the summer, the prediction was likely made months or perhaps years earlier, but then became incorporated into narratives involving sunspots and the weather anomalies. The London Times noted the conflation of the prophecy with weather and sunspot lore, remarking that, quote, These spots are said to be the cause of the remarkable and wet weather we have had this summer, and the increase in sunspots is represented to announce a general removal of heat from the globe, the extinction of nature, and the end of the world. Whatever was the Bologna prophet's rationale for choosing July 18th as the date of the doomsday, it undoubtedly resonated with these narratives perfectly. In modern times, we would characterize the Bologna prophecy as having gone viral, at least in Europe, though word of it was also widely circulated in the United States. To believers, its plausibility could be confirmed by a mere glance at the sun and observation of the dreadful weather. The prophecy deeply frightened many people. In London, one Eleanor Saunders, a maid aged 62, was so terrified of doomsday that she hanged herself. This incident was noteworthy enough to be reported in newspapers in New York City. Eleanor Saunders also surfaced in the diary of a very prominent American, an occasional character here on Second Decade, that being future President John Quincy Adams, the diplomat who negotiated the end of the War of 1812 back in Episode 8. By July 1816, Adams was in London, serving as U.S. Ambassador to Britain. On July 19th, the day after the predicted doomsday, Adams mentioned Eleanor Saunders' suicide. The effect and agitation of the prophecy story, Adams wrote on that day, have been very considerable both in France and England. The churches and chapels have been unusually crowded. London newspapers also reported a story about a woman from Somersetshire who believed in the prophecy and tried without success to convince other members of the household to prepare for doomsday. One morning when a little girl ran into the woman's bedchamber crying, perhaps as a joke, the world's at an end. The woman was supposedly struck by fear into a catatonic state. This was reported in a London paper on July 23rd. In various communities in Belgium, fear of the Bologna prophecy drove large crowds of people, mostly women, into churches to, quote, prepare themselves against this dreadful catastrophe. Some tried actively to stamp out belief in the Bologna prophecy. Some authority, whether civil or ecclesiastical, seems to have arrested the original Bologna astronomer who made the prediction, evidently on charges of disturbing the peace. In France, an astronomer named Rui published an open letter in the Paris newspapers refuting the prophecy. In the week leading up to the supposed doomsday, Monsieur Rui advised that he would give public lectures about sunspots, quote, in order to convince the credulous that there need be no fear of the extinction of that luminary, end quote. Protestations that the Bologna prophecy was false assumed much the same character as more general assertions, unconnected to specific apocalyptic predictions, that sunspots were harmless. 
We saw in the last episode how well that went over. Believe it or not, the Bologna prophecy wasn't the only doomsday prediction circulating during the summer of 1816. Others, perhaps copycats, seemed eager to get in on the action. A Boston newspaper reported, quote, In Naples, as in most of the cities in Italy, there have lately been prophets who predicted the end of the world. In the beginning of June, a priest named Carrillo, preaching in the Church of St. James, announced that the city of Naples would be destroyed on the 27th of that month. It was to rain fire for four hours, and those who escaped the fire were to be devoured by serpents. The police were compelled to arrest the prophet and several other individuals. End quote. Constant talk of the end of the world had people on edge. On July 11th, in Ghent, Belgium, a regiment of cavalry happened to be on maneuvers at the same time a thunderstorm struck. The roar of thunder, combined with the cavalry's bugle calls for retreat, frightened the townspeople who streamed into the streets in a panic. The good folks of Ghent, persuaded that the end of the world was at hand, said one newspaper, believed they had heard the seventh trumpet, which, according to Revelations, is to announce the Last Judgment. In the United States, a group of shakers, said to be influenced by, quote, a pretended prophet, began buying up large quantities of grain in anticipation of a famine that would last seven years, reminiscent of the various seven-year famines mentioned in the Bible. John Quincy Adams wrote, such is human credulity. Lord Byron, who undoubtedly knew about the prophecy, was also writing about the end of the world. During that summer on Lake Geneva, he composed a poem called Darkness. Byron scholars almost universally agree that the poem was inspired by the Bologna prophecy and the anomalies of the year without summer. The poem reads in part, I had a dream, which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread. Of this their desolation, all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light, and they did live by watchfires and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons, cities were consumed, and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour they fell and faded, and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash and all was black. One of the things about the year without summer that most interested me was what people thought about it, what was causing it, how it fit into their worldview, and what it meant in a bigger picture sense. When trying to get into the heads of people in the past to understand what they thought and felt, especially about an event that was inexplicable at the time, and has only since that time come to be explained by modern science, it's tempting to take a shortcut. We might simply conclude, oh, people back then just must have assumed it was just God's will or something. But that's really a big mistake to make that assumption without really delving into the facts. It is true that our modern understanding of what caused the year without summer wasn't available to people on the ground in 1816. 
That's not to say that the theory of volcanic climate change was unheard of. Recall that I mentioned Ben Franklin had proposed this theory in 1783, but no one had really studied it. There was really no way you could study it at that time. I'll talk more about the volcanic causation theory and how it came about in part three of this series. But what you must keep in mind, though, is that the fact that science couldn't in 1816 explain what was happening doesn't mean that science was of no use to make heads or tails of the event. And also keep in mind that what science was in 1816 was very different than it is today, or that we might assume it was. Science, at least as understood by Americans and much of the English-speaking world, wasn't quite akin to witchcraft and heresy as it had been in Europe during the early modern period, but it was by no means a specialized and trusted body of knowledge that it is today. The best way to put it is that, in the second decade, science was only just beginning to become institutionalized, that is, practiced as a profession by experts rather than as a hobby by enthusiastic amateurs. Science competed on a more or less co-equal basis with folklore, the sort of on-the-ground wisdom you find in old farmers' almanacs, little books printed on rough paper that had calendars, phases of the moon, astronomical data, and practical tips about when to plant your beans or what to do if your cows start acting funny. This kind of data appeared side-by-side with old wives' tales, astrological charts, and sometimes jokes or poetry. Every sizable town in the United States big enough to have its own printing house also had a local almanac. Isaiah Thomas, whose diary I quoted in the last episode, was a printer. He published a country almanac centered around Worcester, Massachusetts. Especially out in the countryside, common people, who almost invariably made their living through farming, would usually have two and only two books in their houses, the Bible and a copy of the local farmer's almanac. This sort of folklore, barely tinged with science, most of it astronomical or botanical, wasn't inconsistent with religion. In fact, it usually complemented it. This is one thing that's hard for us to understand today, in the 21st century, where we live in a never-ending culture war in which science and religion are fundamental opposites. That just wasn't true in the second decade, largely because Darwin had not yet developed his theory of evolution, though that was only a few decades off. People did look to God during the year without summer, both in Europe and in North America, particularly when weather events were threatening crops and livelihoods. Keep in mind that a rainy summer to most of us today would be little more than an inconvenience. To people in 1816, it was a serious problem, because it meant crops wouldn't ripen or would otherwise be affected, and you likely wouldn't eat when fall came. I already mentioned that John Quincy Adams noted the churches in England were full during the summer of 1816. They were in other places, too. In Sweden, where crops were also failing, people crammed into churches to offer daily prayers to God to stop the unfavorable weather. Across the ocean in New Hampshire, churches were doing booming business. Observers noted with approval that, to quote a clergyman, an improved state of religious society became strikingly evident. In other parts of New England, such as Brandon, Vermont, the weather and its effects upon the harvest drove increased attendance at religious conference meetings, some of them cutting across denominational lines. Appeals to God for deliverance from the weather appears in Thanksgiving proclamations from that autumn, which were both a religious and political ritual in the United States. New Hampshire Governor William Plummer's proclamation, for instance, noted that in 1816, The earth has not yielded her usual supply for our returning wants. 
and he stated that it was the duty of the people, quote, to humble ourselves for our transgressions and to practice that righteousness which exalts and renders a nation prosperous. The religious reaction to the climate anomalies, at least in the United States, is typified by an account of the small town of Poultney, Vermont. Joshua Bradley, a minister from Albany, New York, published in 1819 a volume of anecdotes regarding religious revivals of the past few years. Describing the story of Poultney, Bradley wrote this, quote, In 1816, an uncommon gloom spread over that whole state. The season was truly alarming, and every month through the year was whitened with frost or snow. This severe judgment seemed to produce a solemnity upon the minds of the multitudes. In September, a work of grace began in one quarter of the town. The pious were held in a state of suspense between hope and fear, whether it would continue and spread its blessings or take its flight and leave the people in their sins. End quote. This question as to the collective spiritual fate of Poultney, Bradley recorded, was settled by the sudden simultaneous religious epiphanies of several young girls who were suddenly struck with solemn awe. The girls, overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, retired to a house to read the Bible and soon began spreading the message of Christian salvation through the rest of the town. Now, this anecdote is interesting for a number of reasons. For one thing, it illustrates the idea of human spiritual action the redoubling of religious fervor, as a direct and appropriate response to the weather events and crop failures. For another, it emphasizes the collective nature of both the curse and the cure. The story isn't about the personal salvation of the girls, but how they became agents of the redemption of the entire community, which was affected equally by the weather. Finally, it doesn't end with an explicit affirmation of the material effect of this spiritual awakening. We don't know from Bradley's account if the bad weather abated or if the next year's harvest was improved, though we assume it must have been. The happy ending is not about God saving the town from the weather, but about the collective spiritual improvement of the character of people of Poultney, Vermont. To understand this, you need to know that there was a spiritual revival going on in America in the 18-teens. Beginning about 1800, various evangelical preachers had begun taking the word of God to the people in mass meetings, often held in tents out in the countryside. The word revivalist, as applied to religious movements, dates from this period. What eventually came to be called the Second Great Awakening was still going strong in 1816. In fact, the year without summer proved to be formative in the life of one of the major figures of the Second Great Awakening. The climate anomalies of that summer struck the hard-scrabble farm of the Smith family in Norwich, Vermont, especially hard. Their previous two attempts at establishing a prosperous farm in New England had been thwarted by crop failures in 1814 and 1815. The strange cold summer and the crop failure it caused, their third in a row, nearly wiped them out. This was enough, wrote Lucy Smith. My husband was now altogether decided upon going to New York. That fall of 1816, the Smith family removed to Palmyra, New York, which two decades later would become famed as the Burned Over District, so named sarcastically because it was seared by repeated religious revivals that burned bright and fizzled out. As it turned out, the Smith family's 11-year-old son, Joseph Jr., would fail in Palmyra too, first at running his family's farm and then as a treasure hunter. But his claims of having discovered certain golden plates ultimately triggered the most enduring legacy of the Second Great Awakening, 
the religion of Mormonism. That, of course, would come later in the 1830s, but the seeds were firmly planted in the second decade and watered by the cold rains of the year without summer. In late August, cold snaps returned in many places. Frost appears in many locations in North America in reports from the last two weeks of the month. The Boston Independent Chronicle ran an article dated August 26, 1816, headlined, Frost in August! Exclamation point. Frost wasn't bad enough to injure crops in Middlesex, but did cut down corn in Maine, which was then a district of Massachusetts. Frost continued into the next month. On October 7th, the same paper quoted a letter from Hanover, New Hampshire. Quote, We have had four of the greatest frosts ever remembered here at this season of the year. The thermometer at sunrise on Thursday, September 30th, was at 25 degrees. On Friday, 20, Saturday, 20, Sunday, 25. End quote. There was no hiding the fact that the cold weather was injuring the harvest. Grain prices were already rising. A report from Troy, New York, dated July 28th, talked about speculators buying barrels of flour in New York and selling them at a huge markup in Canada, whose harvests looked like they were going to be hit a lot worse. I like this article from the Salem Gazette, dated October 4th, 1816. Quote, Save your corn. It has been found by experience that corn killed by frost is best saved by cutting it as soon as possible, binding it in small sheaves, and shocking it in the field. If suffered to remain in its present situation, the roots being alive, it will not dry, but mold, and the crop will be ruined. Many are flattering themselves that the corn is not much injured by the late frosts. Be not deceived. It is at least done growing, and cutting will do it injury. End quote. Although it was rainy in Europe, especially Central Europe and England, and cold many places, the summer of 1816 was a dry one for much of the United States. The forests were parched. Sometime at the end of September, as always happens in a drought, a spark, whether caused by humans or lightning or something else, started a forest fire. By the first week in October, huge swathes of Maine's forests were on fire. This article is from a Boston paper dated October 7, 1816. Quote, it has been observed here for several days past that the atmosphere has been filled with smoke. It proceeds from a very extensive and destructive fire in the District of Maine. We have not been able to ascertain its extent with much precision, but we are informed by a gentleman from the neighborhood of the conflagration that it extends over a very large tract of country in the county of Oxford, including the towns of Paris, Albany, Hebron, Bethel, etc., and the northern part of the county of Cumberland, including Minot and two other towns. One dwelling house and two barns have been burnt at Paris. The extreme dryness of the fields and forests renders all attempts to stop its ravages, so long as the drought continues, almost hopeless. We are told that in some parts of the district of Maine, though at a very great distance from the fire, the smoke is exceedingly thick and the air very much darkened." End quote. This is corroborated by other sources. In the diary of Dr. William Payne, quoted at the beginning of this episode, this entry appears for October 1st, 1816. Tuesday the 1st. Hazy, sunshine, very mild weather, and the AM. Atmosphere appears to be full of smoke. Smoke is spelled S-M-O-A-K. It's from people's personal diaries that I learned the most about the actual experience of living through the year without summer. In the archives of the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, there is a diary of one Joseph Goff, 
a Massachusetts farmer, which is written amongst the pages of a pre-printed almanac. Remember, I talked about those. It was called The Clergyman's Almanac, or An Astronomical Diary and Serious Monitor, for the year 1816, printed in Boston. Goff's diary gives an entire chronicle of the year without summer, from beginning to end, in a few short words. The meaning of his diary is the interplay between what Goff wrote with his own hand and the words on the printed pages. You see, many of these almanacs, including Isaiah Thomas's, were printed with numerous blank pages between one month's entry and the next, assuming that the reader would use these blank pages as the basis of a diary, which in fact many people did. Goff, however, tended to write his notes directly on the pages bearing printed information, astronomical charts and calendars, together with weather predictions, for each month in the year. Beneath the astronomical chart for April 1816, Goff writes at the bottom of the page, a cold and dry month. On the page for May, Goff has written little symbols next to the days that he finds significant. Next to May 14th, there's a little plus symbol. Corresponding note at the bottom of the page, handwritten, says, a snow squall. May 27th is checked, too. The printed weather forecast from the almanac for this day says, grass is promising. Goff has written, apple trees in full blossom. On the chart for June, remember that's the date of the snowstorm, the printed forecast for June 1st through 4th reads, warm with signs of thunder. How wrong they were. Goff writes with an X next to the these days, key to a note at the bottom of the page, remarkably cold for the season, strong wind northwest, and the frost took bloom from vegetation. On the page for the July chart, Goff has brackets around the days July 1st through 5th, he has an X next to July 7th and a note keyed to it at the bottom, hoed corn second time. There's an asterisk next to July 10th and 11th, note at the bottom, began to hay. An unkeyed note at the bottom of the page reads, Mr. Packard's children lost and found, 4,000 people present. I have no idea what this means. The printed page for August contains a poem. It reads, Turn sword and spears deep-tinged with human gore to prune the vine and plough the fruitful field. Then cheerful loves, an ever-lively train, shall chant in every grove the gladsome song. Peace bless the nations with her genial reign, and friendship balm diffuse from every tongue. There's an X next to August 17th. Goff writes at the bottom, Finished haying, a warm month very differently, and the next word is illegible. On the page for September, there's brackets around September 26th and 27th and a star next to it. Keyed to the bottom of the page, his note reads, A hard frost destroyed almost all the corn. There are no notes on the page for October. I don't know if I've ever done anything on this show that puts you more at ground level in the second decade. Here we are with an ordinary man, a simple man, not famous, not remembered in the history books, a farmer from the Massachusetts countryside, and that was the kind of summer he had in 1816. My own tour of the year without summer, and the broader second decade as a whole, was never more illuminating than it was when I observed these personal ground-level moments. That's what makes studying this history in that way different than the way scientists and meteorologists have tended to look at it. Among them, the anomalies of 1816 are definitely of interest, but when judging it from the standpoint of scientific data, the human factor is sometimes lost, and the conclusions distorted. 
Let me give you an example. In 1924, a meteorologist and weather historian from Williams College, Williamstown, Massachusetts, named Willis I. Milham, wrote an article for the Monthly Weather Review called The Year 1816, The Causes of Abnormalities. This article was written at a time when the theory of volcanic causation of global cooling, first developed in the first two decades of the 20th century, was still controversial. I'll talk about that in Part 3 of this miniseries. And 1924 was a time when climate change in general had only just become to be understood by a few. The link between the burning of fossil fuels and global warming caused by CO2 was first proposed in 1896 and disseminated into the bloodstream of the general science reading public in 1908. I'm talking about the work of Svante Arvenius here. So the era in which Milham was writing, again the 1920s, lacked certain advantages of the understanding that we have today particularly in our own era of anthropogenic climate change. In any event, Millam, good meteorologist though he was, studied the year without summer, and particularly how it played out in his hometown of Williamstown, Massachusetts, by looking at temperature data. You may recall I opened part one of this miniseries with an account of the temperature in, in Williamstown, Massachusetts. That reading came from this same body of data that Milham worked from in 1924. To make a long story short, Millam crunched a bunch of temperature data from 1816 and compared it to other years of the 19th and early 20th centuries. He noted that in terms of deviation from mathematical averages in temperature, the years 1836 and 1837 were much colder than 1816. He writes, quote, The reason why 1816 is considered to be abnormal is because the three summer months, June, July, and August, and the two adjacent months, May and September, were all far below normal. And yet, these departures from normal are not extremely large, and only one was the largest for 23 years. If the cold months had not been consecutive, or if the cold spell had come during the winter, spring, or autumn instead of midsummer, the year 1816 would never have been famous. He goes on to say, quote, Thus, as summary, it may be stated that 1816 was a phenomenal year not because the year as a whole averaged so low, not because each month of the year was uniformly cold, but because the three summer months and the two adjacent ones were all cold, and chiefly because the lowest temperatures were extremely low in a locality where the difference of a very few degrees in the lowest temperature in the southern months makes all the difference between a severe frost and the absence of frost." End quote. I'm not going to say that Millam was wrong, at least where the numbers are concerned. The numbers from Williamstown, Massachusetts, that is, which is all he seemed to be concerned with. And one can make an argument that the year without summer was not that unusual if you look at this measurement or that one, this cold summer versus that warm winter. Milham was a very well-respected scientist, one of the chief weather experts of his day, and yet his analysis misses so much. This is almost all, in fact, of the historical and human reality of the year without summer. This is an important point, I think, again, because of the analogy to modern climate change. When the weather and climate is out of whack, so to speak, it makes a big difference in people's lives, in their culture, their ways of thinking, their sense of themselves, and their world. We instinctively know something is happening even without being able to quantify it. The scientists, of course, can quantify it, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Climate change, whether it's human-caused global warming in 2019 or volcanic-induced global cooling in 1816, is primarily a human story, a story of real people's experiences. 
To give you another glimpse into how the year without summer figured into people's minds and consciousness, a story in which Willis I. Milham of Williams College was entirely uninterested, I'll give you one last piece of evidence. In December 1816, a magazine called The Panoplist and Missionary Magazine, I'm not sure where it was published, carried a lengthy article titled simply The Season. It's a fascinating roundup of weather and climate anomalies across the United States for the summer and early fall of 1816. I considered reading it in its entirety for this episode, but I'll stick with quoting the last paragraph. The author is uncredited, as many newspaper editorials were in the second decade. Quote, The contemplative Christian will regard this remarkable providence with a disposition equally remote from the foolhardy presumption of some and the superstitious fears of others. That God has expressed his displeasure towards the inhabitants of the earth by withholding the ordinary rains and sunshine cannot reasonably be doubted. Many districts of our own country are greatly impoverished, and although we hope that famine will not be experienced in any part of it, very considerable privations will certainly be felt. In Europe, the people suffer much more than in any part of this country. That the sufferings of all may be mitigated, so far as shall consist with their permanent good, and with the purposes of divine government, should be the constant prayer of the Christian. During the cold weather of June and July, we have had an opportunity of observing how the minds of the people were affected. A general gloom was evident, and a general conviction that men are really dependent upon God. May this conviction become more deep and abiding, and produce its proper influence on the hearts and lives of all. End quote. The story of the year without summer will be concluded in the next episode. Here are a few announcements and housekeeping matters I'd like to let you know about. First, my book. No, not the second decade book, which, yes, I am still working on. Thank you. No, I'm talking about... A nonfiction book, my first, which came out on Amazon in August, it's called The Warmest Tide, How Climate Change is Changing History. If you're interested in the connections between our modern episode of global warming and certain events in the human past, I think you may be interested in this book. I'll include a link to it in the show description. If you're hearing this show before October 22, 2019, you have a chance to sign up for a free webinar that I'm conducting on that day. 9 a.m. Pacific USA time on the historical background of Brexit, departure of the United Kingdom from the European Union, which may or may not be happening, deal or no deal, on October 31st. In this webinar, I'll cover the long history of Britain's relationship with the EU, as well as what the EU is and how it came about in the first place, stories you don't often hear told in media events reporting about Brexit. Put a link to sign up for the webinar on the webpage for this episode at seconddecade.net, or you can search for the webinar on eventbrite.com, that's B-R-I-T-E, just search for Brexit History and it should pop up. Again, the webinar is free. If you can't make the time but are still interested, register anyway, because I'll be emailing a private link to the video recording of the webinar to all participants after it's over, whether you were able to be there live or not. Next, I want to give a shout-out to Nathaniel Lloyd of the Historical Blindness Podcast. That's a great show, by the way, and I've really been enjoying it. Nathaniel was nice enough to give me a plug on his show, and especially regarding these episodes, the Year Without Summer series, which I hope will be one of the highlights of the whole Second Decade podcast. Do check out Nathaniel's show. If you become a supporter of him on Patreon, as I am, you'll get access to an ad-free feed. 
I really should do something like that myself, looking into it. If you'd like to join my Patreon account, that's patreon.com slash seanmunger, I'm running a special series, one a day every day until they run out. I'm posting an audio file which is my reading of another chapter of my 2016 novel, The Valley of Forever. This is a magical realism novel, a bit experimental, definitely mind-blowing. These chapters are for patrons only, so if you want access to that, sign up on Patreon. Your support will also help defray expenses of this show and my other projects. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. My historical sources for this episode are too numerous to mention. I use mostly newspaper and diary entries. I got access to many of them through the three archives that I'd like to thank. The Huntington Library of San Marino, California, the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston, and the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, all of whom supported my academic research into the second decade as I was working toward my degrees. Nearly all of the material for this series on the year without summer comes from my thesis and dissertation notes and sources collected in that process. So thank you, Huntington, MHS, and AAS. Incidentally, Isaiah Thomas, who was quoted in this episode, and will be in the next one, founded the American Antiquarian Society actually in the second decade, in 1812. There's meta for you. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.